Well, what a joy it is to be worshiping with all of you this morning. My name is Zach Thompson. I am the campus pastor over at the Thornton campus. And it is, it's always a joy to come to the Erie campus because it's the reminder that over the past two and a half years that we have been a church, it is due in no small part to your generosity, to your prayers, to your support, to your camaraderie. So, so every time I show up here, it's the reminder of the fact that for two and a half years now, people in the city of Thornton have been hearing the gospel through Calvary Bible Church thanks to partnership with you. So thank you so much for, for all of that. Uh, I wanted to start things off this morning by going to what's, what's a really common quote. If you've been around churches for a while, you, you might have heard it before. It's, it's from a theologian named A.W. Tozer. He says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And, and his, his point that he's making there is that as we think about God, as we reflect on him, as we ponder, as we meditate on his word, this isn't some mental exercise. This isn't some, some uh, cool thing to think about. It has deep, it, uh, it has deep impact. It, it impacts how we view God. It impacts how we view the life that we have. It impacts how it is that we live. And so with that comes the very natural follow-up question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? How is it that you picture him? What was the image that you draw up when you think about God? There's a few different ones that I've had uh, show up in different, different times of my life. One of them is, is thinking about God kind of in this image of, of a police officer. You ever had that moment where even when you're not doing anything wrong, I would never, ever accuse you of breaking any laws, but even if you're not doing anything wrong, when you glance into the rearview mirror and you see a police car behind you, doesn't your stomach just drop? <laughs> Don't you clench the steering wheel a little bit more? My hands have never been more accurate to 10 and 2 in those moments. The eyes glance over to the speedometer just to make sure, just to make sure that they're not back there for you. Maybe even getting over a lane to see, do they go past you or do they follow you? In which case, oh no. Maybe we think about God in kind of that same way. He says what is right and wrong, and then we just expect him to be there looking out, seeing if we're doing any wrongdoing. And so we walk into church and our stomach drops a little bit. We read the Bible with our eyes glancing to the speedometer, looking over our life, seeing, is there any way that I'm falling short? Is there anything I'm doing wrong? Is he coming for me? Maybe we picture God as, as this police officer type figure, just looking out to dole out punishment to wrongdoing. Or, or maybe we have a different image. We, we read about, we hear about God's love and his grace all the time, and yet we look out into the world and we see disasters and pain and hardship and brokenness. So this image comes to mind as God being this, this very friendly, this very kind person, almost like this smiling old man, but he's too frail to do anything of actual help, that, that he would love to. He would love to help us, love to support us, love to do whatever he could. He's just, he's just not able to, and we see that in the world. And if we, this is the picture of God that we have, then we start to treat him like that. Maybe we spend time with him every so often, you know, probably when we need something, making sure our future is still secure. My, my name's still written down, right? I'm still in your book. I'm still having what's coming to me, right? Maybe we'll spend time with them around the holidays. But if God is this smiling, frail old man, there's not too much other relationship there. 
Or maybe we do know that God is able. He can work. He can do all things. It just seems a little bit random as to when he chooses to work and when he doesn't. God ends up being a little bit like a slot machine in this moment. We go with our, our cup of change and we put coin in after coin in, prayer after prayer, hoping that this is the time that it pays out. This is the time that he does something. Or maybe we get a picture of God as Santa. We have a list of things that we want to be done. We, we brought them to him and now we're just waiting to see what do we get? Of course, being naughty or nice might help our chances, but we're just waiting to see what will he do. What is the image of God that we have? It, there, there's been times, I, I will admit, that I've had all of those images, n- never admitting to those things, never saying that God is like that, but how I've acted, how I've been living out reflects, this is what I'm thinking God will do. He's like a police officer, or a frail but kindly old man, or a slot machine, or Santa, or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's not just moments of having that. There's, there's no other categories that we have. That, that's what we thought God was supposed to be like. We have no other images to draw forward. What is it that comes into your mind when you think about God? And it's for that reason that we've wanted to do the series that we've called This We Believe, where we want to look at what are the core truths, what are, what are the core convictions that we have as a church, the things that we believe are absolutely true. And we're doing this series for a variety of reasons. One is because we want to be absolutely committed to what the Bible says. The second one is it's so easy to be blown off course when we are not anchored to truth. And the third is because of what Tozer said. What comes into our mind when we think about God has lasting impact. It shows up in how we live, how we think about God, how we relate to each other. And so with that being our series, uh, we, we recognize that the picture that we have in our statement of faith, which our statement of faith is not the Bible. We do not hold them to the same regards. The, the Bible we hold with reverence and, and all, it has all authority. Our statement of faith, we think, summarizes the Bible. It, it gives us the Bible's teaching. In our, in our statement of faith, we have a picture of God that's greater than anything we might imagine on our own. This is what we say to be true here as a church. This is Article 1 of our Statement of Faith, which I don't have written down or memorized just yet, so I'm going (laughs) to... Perfect. There we go. It says that we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. Now, this does not say everything that's true about God. The other thing is, I am in no way able to say everything about what's written in the statement here. So you have a terrific, terrific pastor on this campus Thomas is so gifted in taking complex ideas and and making them clear and and importantly, succinct. I'm really good at taking even the easiest ideas and and making them murky and even longer than they're supposed to be. (laughs) If I haven't said so yet, I'm really glad for you all having me out here. This is gonna be great. So I can't say everything that there is to say about this statement. And and so in our time together, I I just wanna look at a few highlights, a a few of the the most important pieces of of this statement reflecting on who God is. The first thing I'll say is if someone came up to me and said, uh, describe God in one word, to that I would say, the the one word would be, no. 
Uh, that, that is too arbitrary and, and uh, short of a task. I don't want to do it. But if I was more agreeable in personality, I would probably use the one word of infinite. God is infinite. And that shows up in our statement. It says that he is infinitely perfect. Now, the idea of something being infinite is, is, is hard for us to wrap our minds around. Some of that is because we are not infinite. Nothing about us is, is related to infinity. We are very much so finite people. We are made up of everything that every part of us is countable. We have a fixed number of days that we will live. There's a fixed number of parts that make up our bodies. There's, there's a fixed number of molecules that make up all of those parts. Every bit about us is countable. Maybe not physically, we don't have that technology, but every aspect of, of us is fixed, it is finite. There is a set amount of it. So as we're talking about God being infinite, he is uncountable. He's not able to be measured in any way. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Because even the largest thing that we can think of, or, or the most numerous thing that we could imagine, doesn't do justice to the concept of infinity. Think, think about what some of the biggest numbered things might be. Imagine that you're at uh, the beach. It's summer, so we might be uh, beach-bound at some point. So we're, we're on this beach, and it's this incredible spot to where we look to our right, and we just see shoreline. We just see beach going for miles and miles and miles. We look to our left, and it's the same thing, beach for miles and miles and miles. And covering this entire thing is the most beautiful, luxurious sand. How many grains of sand are there? I mean, we can spend a lifetime just counting out how many grains of sand there are and not make a dent into that shoreline. We could spend another lifetime and another and another and another and never come close to tallying up how many grains of sand there are. Well, God is not only more than that, he is infinitely more than that. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. You think of the entire Rocky Mountain. How many trees are, are in that entire mountain range? That is such a massive number. And yet God is infinitely more than that. Not just greater, infinitely greater than that. What else is another massive number? Uh, the amount of money Russell uh, uh, Wilson was paid to lead a 5-12 and 12 team this past year. God is infinitely more than that. But it's not just that God is, is infinite in time. Every bit of them, because God is infinite in his nature, every aspect of God is infinite. Every aspect is greater than the largest number that we can imagine by an infinite amount. So I, I think of um, Psalm 147, verse 5. It says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. His understanding is infinite. We cannot count it. We cannot comprehend how great his understanding is. God knows all things. The, the word that we might use for that is God is omniscient, which just means God knows everything. God knows an infinite amount. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, infinitely, then we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. God is able to do or accomplish an infinite amount of things with an infinite amount of power. The word we might use for this is God is, uh, is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's nothing that he is unable to do. He is able to accomplish all that he sets out to do. 
Jeremiah 23, verses 23 through 24 says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Aren't I near to you, he says? 24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill, fill completely, infinitely, heaven and earth, declares the Lord. There's not a place where God is not. He is in all places. We would say God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all at once. When we talk about what God is like, when we say that he is infinite, all that he does, every attribute that he has is done so infinitely. So when we read uh, 1 John verse 4, 8, it says God is love. This tells us that God is infinitely love. Not just that he does love, but this is who he is in his nature. So he loves infinitely, in an unmeasurable, an uncountable amount of love. That is how much he has. When we read that God is good, he is infinitely good. When we say God is just, he is infinitely just. When we say God is holy, he's infinitely holy, infinitely sovereign, infinitely wise. God in all that he does is infinite. And all that he is, is infinite. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but, it, but it's, it's not something that, that we're bringing up because it's insignificant. There, there's very clear implications because of the fact that we have a God who is infinite. Matthew Barrett, uh, he's a theologian, he wrote a book called None Greater, and he, and he gave this simple sentence definition. It's kind of the thesis of his book, the simple sentence definition of God. He says, God is someone than whom none greater. Do you see where he got his title from? Than whom none greater can be conceived. God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. So, so what does it mean that we have a God who is infinite? That there is never anything that he will come across that he is incapable to do. There's never a moment that he will run out of goodness. There's never someone who can come by and beat God or best God in something. That there's never a part that he will be exhausted or expire. And what this means as well, the implication of this is that there's never a moment where God turns off part of who he is. Let me, let me try to explain this. Uh, my emotions, my reactions to things, my, my feelings seem to operate at times like th there's a series of switches. So when I'm at church, uh, because I care about the people who are there, because it's so honoring to think that God might work through me, because I don't want to lose my job, uh, I will operate with a lot of patience and gentleness and kindness in those moments. Those switches are all on when I'm at church. But as I'm driving home and someone cuts me off, my anger switch turns on. And in that moment, it's hard for me to operate with any kindness or gentleness or goodness to that jerk who should have looked where he was going. It seems like as one switch goes on, other parts of me are more difficult to do or they just don't seem to exist at all. Well, God's not like that. When we say God is infinite, there is never a moment that he is turning off or closing off or running out of part of who he is. He is infinite. So God is infinitely loving. God is infinite love. There's, there's never a part where he has cut that off or turned that off. God is infinite injustice. There's never a part where that is turned off. These aren't things in opposition to each other. So we can never say, oh, God's not being very loving to me today. It may not feel that way, but God has never turned off love, never run out of love. He is an infinite God in all holiness, 
and all sovereignty and all wisdom, there's never a part where he has cut off part of that. Now, as we talk about these parts of God, these attributes of God, it may, it may start to sound like these are the things that make him up. So if I was describing myself, I would say, well, I have legs, I have arms, I have a head. I like hockey and, and soccer and movies and to read. And these are all things that, that don't fully describe me if you take them in isolation. Like if you're trying to describe me, oh, uh, Pastor Zach was here, he's the one with the arms. Like that doesn't really do a lot of justice to describing me. And, and you need to look at all of these things together, which form a whole, which form the whole me. Well, God's not like that. He's not split up into various parts or pieces. He, he's, he's not just a, a, an accumulation of attributes or anything like that. He is one. He is whole. And we see that in our statement as well. Right at the beginning, it says, we believe in one God. Now, the easy way to read that is it tells us, well, how many gods do we believe in? It's not, it doesn't, it's not as though it tells us that, oh, uh, we, we believe in two gods, the God of the Bible and some God named Steve. No, this, this simply says we believe in one God. But it also describes what that God is like, that this one God is one. He's not made up of parts or pieces. He cannot be divided or separated, that he is one whole, complete God. And that gets us to another part of our statement as well. Pastor Tom was out here last week, and one of the main takeaways that he had for you was, was that Jesus is fully God. The Bible declares that to be true all throughout. I'm going to spoil part of Thomas's message as he's here next week. He's going to make the point that the scripture is very clear that the Holy Spirit is fully God. When he's here next week, can you like act surprised when he says that? I really don't want him to be angry at me for ruining that point. And we're making a point that God the Father is fully God. And so if we're just doing simple counting, well, okay, so the Father's fully God, Jesus is fully God, Spirit's fully God, that, that's three fingers up there, so three gods. But the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that God is one. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the greatest commandment, Jesus has asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God. The Lord, the one God, the one Lord. All throughout the Bible, it's clear that there is one God. So this is what we instead see is the teaching of Scripture, is that there is this one good, holy, perfect God existing in three equal persons, not separated or divided out. Instead, it's that he is existing in three equal persons, existing in perfect community for an infinite amount of time. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around. We, we talked about how God is infinite. How do we even picture the, the concept of infinite, let alone that God is infinite in who he is, in every, in every aspect of him, in, in how he relates, everything that would describe him as being himself, he is infinite of that. That's hard for us to imagine. We, we even think about how the fact that we tire out as people. Well, God never does that. He's, he does not become exhausted. That we are, we are limited to just being in this one place. Well, God is not that. He's in all places. We're limited to just being in this one time. And I'm sure while I'm talking, it may seem like this time is going on forever, but I assure you, it is not. But God is outside of time. That, that we, uh, we get frustrated. We are, are victims of our emotions and responding to circumstances around us. And yet God is always the same. He is so different than us. 
And now we talk about this, this trinity, this triunity, God being three equal persons, and yet God being one. How do we conceptualize that? These aren't parts of God. This is God. He's not three person, uh, He's not three separate gods. He is one. It starts to make sense why we might picture him in ways that make sense to us, doesn't it? How we see God like a police officer or a slot machine. We, we can understand that. We can wrap our minds around that piece. And yet, what we see is that they don't capture who God is. And all, as we try, as we try to understand him, we, as we, we understand that we cannot. He is so different from us. Our ways are not his ways. He is so unlike us. He is so massive, so much bigger than anything we can conceptualize. How is it then that we can relate to a God that's so drastically different? Especially when we look at the two fundamental truths of every single person. The first is that every person, all people, need this God. That it's only in him that we find our full purpose and joy and value and direction. The second truth is no one can draw near to this God. He is too holy. He's too good. He's so infinite. And yet we are not. So how do we relate to a God like this, who's so much bigger than our ability to conceptualize him, to understand him, to even draw near to him? How can we possibly relate to a God like this? Well, this is his grace, that while we need him, he has no need for us, while we need him, he is drawn near, he has revealed himself to us. If you have a Bible, can you turn with me to the book of Hosea? Hosea chapter 11. This is just a random, like, there's no context for this whatsoever. I just want to remind you that there's never any shame of using the table of contents at the front of your Bible. Just never any whatsoever. If anyone ever makes you feel ashamed of using that, they care more about facts or details of the Bible than actually helping people experience the life-giving words that are found within. So never any shame with that. Uh, if you remember how to get to the book of Daniel from our series before, Hosea is the very next book after that. So Hosea chapter 11, this is God talking to his people, Israel, at the time. And, and we get this, this image throughout, and it's portrayed very vividly, uh, of God loving his people. But they are acting like a prostitute who have gone after other gods, other things than him. And this is how God is responding to his people all throughout. Hosea chapter 11 comes after multiple chapters of judgment of God saying, this is what will happen to you as my people because you have turned to other things. And it may look like God has turned off his love in that moment. But here we have the greatest reminder of all that God never turns off part of himself because this is how God chose to reveal himself to his people. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. This is Hosea chapter 11. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the, to the balls, to burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. It's, it's a word for the northern tribes, for Israel, like right before they go off into exile. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to one I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. 
Do you see the tenderness of God towards his people here? That though they've been turning away from him, though they've been pursuing other things, God has said, I have been a father to you. Even, I love the picture in verse three. It talks about how I taught them to walk. Maybe you've been part of teaching someone to walk. Or, or you've seen someone, a, a child, as they're learning to do so. Walking is, is a, a task in repeated failure. And there's constant falling down. And yet God said, as you were doing that, I was teaching you. There's scrapes and bruises and cuts. And God said, as you were doing that, I was healing you. I was picking you up. I was guiding you in the direction to go. This picture of God caring for his children as a father. Verse 5. It says, and they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High God, he shall not raise them up. So we have, I have been a father to you, even from the beginning. And this is how you've lived. You've turned away from me towards these other things. And because of that, there's, there's judgment. Justice dictates that there's judgment. But that doesn't mean that God stops being a father to them. It doesn't mean that God stops loving or caring for them in this way. Because this is what he says. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How, how could I just give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboeen? Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, these cities that were completely demolished by God's judgment. How can I do that to you, who was a son to me? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am a God, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, I will not come down in wrath. Instead, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and the, uh, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. We have this picture of God revealing himself as a father. How can we know this God who's so different, who's so massive, who's so indescribable, who's so incomprehensible? How can we know and relate to this God that we so desperately need? He has revealed himself as a father. It's the same truth that we read about elsewhere in scripture. Isaiah chapter 63 declares back to God, you are our father. Psalm 103, it's, it's uh, talking about God's characteristic. It says that he shows compassion on his children like a father shows compassion on their children. Or even Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching us how to pray and he starts off by saying, our father. God has made himself known to us. This God that we can't possibly understand or draw near or comprehend, God has made himself known to us as a father. This isn't a, a mere name for him. This isn't some job description of who he is. This is a picture of what he is like, how he has made himself known, how he has drawn near to us, that he, like a father, has all correction and guidance and love and support and encouragement and care and compassion, that he knows us not as some distant strangers, not as something that he has created, but knows us as closely and as dearly as a father knows a child. Now, when we talk about God as father, 
it becomes just about impossible for us to disentangle our experience with fathers when we are thinking about him as God the Father. And this could be a good thing. Maybe as we're trying to relate to God, it brings back the memories that we have of, of the care and counsel and guidance of, of our earthly fathers. That helps us to understand what it means that God could be this loving towards us. But others of us haven't had that great experience with our earthly fathers. So we, when we see of, of God caring for his people in this way, we just, we can't understand it. We don't have that experience of fathers. Or maybe as we talk about fathers, it just brings up the pain of what we wish could be true. That we instead remember the doctor's appointment where we were told of the impossibility. And yet for the low, low price of $50,000, we could maybe have a 40% chance of someday being called father. Or the adoption agency that says wait times have never been so good. Here's what you can do to make your profile look more attractive. Like it's a game show to a birth mother. Or that we wish that we could just pick up the phone right now and call our father. And even the best of fathers, those that we are so grateful to have, who've done such a great job of, of giving us a picture of God the Father, they still fall short. There's times where they couldn't be there, times where they couldn't help us in the way that we needed, in the way that we wanted. And it's so hard in these moments as we talk about God the Father to disentangle this from our experience of fathers. It may sound like I'm taking us back to that question of how can we possibly relate to a God that's so different, that, that impossible question that we had before. And I, I promise I'm not. Because I think that these reactions, this longing within us, this hope when we think about fathers, well, it's actually there to point us to the one and only perfect father. Because think of your memories maybe even a core memory that you have, or, or a desire that, that goes back even, maybe even to childhood of what you wish a father would have done for you, or a core memory that you have of, of your father. Maybe, maybe something like learning to ride a bike for the first time without training wheels. What is it that gives us the motivation to start pedaling? Well, it's the promise of a parent, of a father who says, don't worry, I'm with you. Doesn't this point us to our perfect, infinite Father who says, I am always with you. I'm always caring for you, always guiding you, even when the stakes are higher than bicycles. Or in the moments that we feel lost, we don't, we don't know what to do, we don't know the direction, even as an adult sometimes, knowing that we can call a Father who gives guidance and direction. Doesn't that point us to our perfect Father that we can always call on, who's infinite in knowledge and power and wisdom. Or when we're feeling sad, the knowledge that we have a father that, that we can bring into our sadness who cares and, and guides us and loves us in that moment, doesn't that point us to our perfect father that we can call upon for all things? Or the moments that we have good news that we just want to share with someone, we can't contain it within us. The fact that we have someone that we can, we can call up and they're going to be more excited about that than even we are, doesn't that point us to the perfect father who infinitely delights in his children? 
We have this infinite God, infinite in all he is, all he does, infinite in love and justice and, and power, infinite in time and space and ability. This God who's, who's one and yet three persons. This God who seems so incomprehensible, unknowable, so massive, uncontainable. This is how he's revealed himself to us. And we see that in our statement as well. This is how it ends. It says that God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself. That this God who seems so unknowable, so massive, has revealed himself graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself. This God we so desperately need that on our own power we cannot draw near. He has revealed himself as a father with all guidance and care, compassion, correction, love, support, so that we might become his people. We read from Hosea chapter 11, this picture of God as father showing love for his child. And yet it's through another son that he calls from Egypt that we are made into this position, made into his people, made and adopted into his family. This is Galatians chapter four, verse six and seven. It says that, and because you are sons, sons and daughters, but at the time, sons had in, in the, the ability to inherit, so it's, it's, it's important that it's talking about sons and daughters. The usage of son is, is very specific here, though. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is who you are because you have a father like this. Think of how that impacts our value. You have a God this massive, this infinite, who calls you his child. Think of what this does for, for your purpose. That you have a God who has no needs in, him, in himself and yet has drawn near, revealed himself so that we have guidance and direction in life. Think of what this means for your life that, that we have this God who's, who's uh, made himself known so that we can become more and more like this perfect father. Think about all that we can face in this life because we have a God like this who's caring and supporting, who says, I am with you always. Think of what it means that we have this perfect, infinite God that we can cry out with all of our hearts, Abba, Father. Well, that is our God. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that we can use that name. Not as some title, not as some job description, because that is who you are to us. You have made us your children. You have redeemed us as a people. You have revealed yourself, this God that is so unknowable, incomprehensible, so infinite in all your ways that we could not possibly draw near to you. And yet you have revealed yourself to us. You have shown yourself to us, not as some impersonal, faraway figure, not as some well-meaning but in, uh, uh, underpowered person, but as Father, infinite God, infinite in all you are, 
infinite in love and care and direction. You are our Father. And because of that, we live our lives for you, shaped by you, guided by you, directed by you. Because only you are God. Only you are Father. Only you have made us into the people we are. So it's to you and you alone that we pray. Amen. Amen.